Podcast. EcoMotion's mission is the cost-effective greening of cities, corporations, and campuses. For these podcasts, we'll be focusing on people in motion. In fact, EcoMotion has a theme song. It's all about EcoMotion, people in motion, people taking care of the planet. These EcoMotion podcasts are going to shed light on and get key insights from leading green thinkers, their works, their passions, what keeps their engines charged. We're going to be talking to really interesting people those that plan, and those that do, starting with Michael Totten, a man I deeply respect. Michael is highly educated. He's continually funneling huge amounts of information into his brain. Michael's our first guest. He is a thinker of, of the grandest proportions, as you will hear. We, we joke that I need a rope to bring him down to earth. Michael is all about the picture, big picture. So welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks, Ted. It's great to be here. It's, uh, actually, I feel a real honor uh, to be sitting here talking with you. Oh, that's fantastic. Let's, let's just begin with what you're up to right now and what's exciting you so much. We had some fantastic hikes here in Colorado. We heard, I've heard all about it, and I just want to share this with the audience. Uh, well, currently I'm working with a fascinating uh, gentleman by the name of Jeremy Rifkin, who's a prolific writer, has been for 40 years. I've known him for about 30 years. Uh, his, he's currently working on a, a four-part book um, initiative uh, focused on the Third Industrial Revolution. And his basic thesis going back beginning in the 90s is that automation is going to displace workers. We're going to have humans with lots of free time on their hands. The first book was called Empathic Civilization, which is we need to get in touch with our deep learning, uh, lifelong learning, and deep play uh, where we don't see our lives focused on work, per se. In fact, if there is work, uh, it should be deep work, passionate work, something that we really enjoy and fervently get up in the morning and find ourselves in a flow all day long enjoying this work. Um, and so he has been spending the last 15 years in Europe working with the European Parliament, European Commission, which because of the way the European Union is set up laterally, unlike uh, the U.S. where we're more horizontal with the federal, state, and local, uh, sovereign nations there have to network together. So they took very naturally to his thesis that the third industrial revolution is about the uh, linkages and the synergisms between the internet of communications, the internet of energy, particularly distributed solar and wind systems, buildings becoming nanogrids that link together into microgrids, and the internet of mobility, uh, electric vehicles that plug into buildings and serve as both battery backup systems, but then they detach, they're portable, they move around. And uh, this all, by convergence, has given rise to things like the sharing economy. So the European Union has adopted the Third Industrial Revolution, and we're working now in piloting it in two countries, in the Netherlands and Luxembourg. That is fantastic. And so let's, let's, let's back up now and, and, and figure out how you got to where you are and why you are continually <laughs> uh, leading this charge, really, to try to define a really sustainable uh, society – and not just a sustainable society where resource flows 
uh, are sustained, but a society in which um, the quality of life right. is, is really enhanced. Um, but um, fascinating. You've been shuttling back and forth to Europe. Uh, let's 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 talk about your upbringing. Um, go all the way back to your youth. You're a, you're a Laguna Beach kid, right? I grew up on the beach, and it probably was spending time on the water and under the water. I mean, I clearly had two very in inspiring, influential figures, uh, Jacques Cousteau, who first opened the wonder and awe of the underworld, a sea, and so that's been a lifetime passion of mine. And the other was Carl Sagan, uh, the infinite space, the billions and billions of planets out there. Um, so my entire life is focused uh, really on spending as much time I c can in curiosity about all of what life is about. And it, and as you do, you start seeing lots of problems arising. I, uh, in Southern California, the smog was horrendous. It was equivalent to smoking two packs of cigarettes a day when I was little. Uh, we see the same phenomenon in China now with their big push for economic growth. So the span of 60 years, these problems have remained consistent in different parts of the world. The oceans is the saddest uh, experience where I've been uh, snorkeling and diving and surfing uh, for 50 years, and I have seen a continuous decline in the health of the oceans. In fact, um, you know the the pH of the oceans is is uh, getting lower more rapidly than we've seen in 300 million years. And if we continue to combust fossil fuels and burn uh, down tropical forest, that CO2 gets absorbed by the ocean, lowers the pH, and it will have a pretty much of a similar experience that humans do when they suffer from uh, the lowering of pH of their body. The system starts to break down, and we're seeing this. 40% uh, of all coral reefs are now dead, and we're expected to see almost all of them gone within the next couple of decades. Interesting, and uh, I, I love the linkage between the, the ocean. Uh, I always thought of you sort of as a surfer dude, but now you've, <laughs> now you've really helped me uh, understand how that significantly shaped your, your environmental career. I know that your dad wanted you to stay in, in Southern California and that you, you went off to Yale. Um, and why did you do that and what did you learn there? And right. how, how was that a launching pad for your yeah. career? Well, uh, Yale was, uh, kind of opened my eyes to all the different disciplines. And I really fell in love with being a cross-disciplinary scholar. Um, and I came under the spell of a, a couple of inspiring individuals. I was an assistant to um, G. Evelyn Hutchinson, who's considered the father of ecology. And he, he was raising back in the 1940s the issues of uh, human uh, consumption and population on the planet and the pollution impact. So uh, I remember him, I was a literature major studying, you know, that's one way of studying all disciplines. You read a Shakespeare, you're learning about all the characters of society. Uh, but I, um, he gave me a book which was influential in changing my whole life. It was called The uh, Ecological Theater and the Evolutionary Play. And it shows how everything is connected, everything is networked. And I've been fascinated about networks ever since. And in fact, uh, going back to the early, uh, I, I guess it was the 1970s, when the military was developing what now is the Internet, uh, I was fascinated. And I remember reading an article by the World Meteorological uh, Service called WITS, 
World Information Telecommunication Service. And I thought, yeah, that's, this is it. Connecting everybody and sharing of information. Fantastic. So, and then, uh, but I think you, didn't you want to become a writer? At, at- Wasn't that sort of the next step along the path? Well, that's uh, right, because I absorb so much information. And you can imagine that was a little harder before the computer. Now I absorb probably 100 times a day what I did back in the 60s and 70s. Um, And I do feel like my head is the size of a whale sometimes. Uh, There's so much information going in. How do you begin to convey it so people hear it? I mean, people are not going to read all that I read. So you have to distill it into narratives and stories and little factoids. And I'm not a practitioner like you are. I'm not out there with uh, the uh, uh, tools and and assembling solar carports and uh, looking at resolving how people move to uh, greening their buildings and their built environment. But I'm, I am, I, I look upon myself as a planetary physician. And in that sense, my father, grandfather was a surgeon, uh, always looking at people's systemic problems and they'd come to him pretty late in the problems they faced and he would heal them. And that was remarkable. But I thought, I don't want to just do that for an individual. I want to do that for an entire species. Humanity. Uh, I, we, we were joking around about it when we were hiking this weekend, but uh, a global sustainability strategist. That's right. I, uh, I sort of uh, tried to get very literal with a, with a title. And, uh, and it's fantastic that you've been able to uh, maintain that global perspective and that strategic um, vision throughout your career. Uh, I met you when you were in D.C. and you had worked for a number of environmental nonprofits trying to push an agenda. Then you were working with Claudine Schneider in the Congress right. for, uh, for years. Uh, how was the, what was the Washington experience like and why did that or how did that fit in? Yeah. Well, I, I first was working at the county level and I was trying to promote solar power and, uh, and found out that one of the reasons it was not taking hold was the phenomenal level of subsidies that our country, in fact, worldwide, um, provide for fossil fuels and nuclear power. Uh, it hasn't changed much in 50 years. Well, what county was that? Were, were you? This was a very conservative Orange County, okay. California. So you came back to Orange County. Came back after college and uh, worked as an assistant to the chairman of the board. And uh, it, it, there, at that time, President Nixon wanted to build all these oil wells offshore. And so we were promoting alternatives. But it turned out, um, I don't recall what the, the figures were then, but today... The International Monetary Fund uh, annual report shows that the world governments give out $5.5 trillion of taxpayer subsidies to the fossil fuel industry. And in fact, the U.S. Congress passed a law that basically underwrites nearly 100% of the cost of a utility building a new power plant. No risk involved, uh, no capital risk. So it's been very difficult for the solar and wind and energy efficiency industry to thrive and flourish when the scales are so So did you try unbalanced. to, did you try to take your local experience then and say, this has to policy needs to be at a much broader level at a national level. Is that Absolutely. is that what took you to D.C.? It did, and my first uh, job was working with a taxpayer group uh, to fight a nine billion dollar plutonium fueled nuclear reactor that made no sense economically, and rather than arguing on the grounds of uh, the security issues of plutonium being circulated that could make weapons bombs, or uh, the the energy argument. Um, of whether it was uh, vulnerable 
more vulnerable resource or not, we strictly looked at the fact that it was unnecessary. It was a waste of taxpayer dollars. Um, but I then went on to work with a congresswoman who wanted to take this issue on big time. So I, she had me draft a 250-page Global Warming Prevention Act that put the emphasis on annual efficiency gains made throughout the nation and the uh, policies and regulations and subsidies that would uh, uh, help align our country taking advantage of what we knew then could probably provide half of all delivered energy services, eliminate the need for new coal, nuclear. What year plants. was that? It was 1989. So well before California's AB 32. Oh, yes. Oh, and yes. scoping study, which we had to figure out how to how to bring ratchet our emissions down. This was the same year James Hansen gave testimony to Congress that global warming was occurring and would only get more serious. And um, our bill uh, had 12 titles, so everybody thought it would be dead on arrival, but it went to showing the complexity that it was basically reported to 20 subcommittees. So each of those subcommittee chairmen had a role, an important role, in seeing how this impacted agriculture, forestry, uh, fisheries, the ocean, um, the whole coastal built environment that would be threatened with uh, economic losses. And it, we, I would find the most fascinating aspect of that bill was that it uh, we advertise it to the other members of Congress as it really should be a, has really should have been called the U.S. Economic Productivity Enhancement and That's Export right. Competitiveness Act because it was the world needed more efficiency and emission-free uh, systems. Right. We but, got a hundred Republicans on that bill, but it, but and obviously it failed ultimately. It, it yeah it uh, it didn't pass um, and pieces of it passed uh, and the Congress just wasn't Congress was not ready for that depth of a message, I, I gather. Well, we, we got a third of the members of the Congress on the bill, and we would have had half, uh, but the 12th title was on providing uh, universal voluntary family planning assistance, both in the U.S. and worldwide, because it would the, the data then showed that we could probably stabilize the government, uh, the world population at seven and a half uh, billion instead of the twelve billion. You were you were really tackling it all, all of it, <laughs> and all of it. So how? What was the next step after Claudine Schneider and, and uh, well, Rhode Island? When you immerse yourself in that amount of information, where global warming affects every facet of the economy, I realized we need to get this information out. We were in a uh, oasis of information, but it was like a desert outside of Washington. I had free access to everything. So I started a nonprofit group uh, called the Center for Renewable Energy and Sustainable Technology. I still have your Frisbee, by the way. Thank the you. Crest Frisbee, crest with, Frisbee. The, with the big frog on it. Because we, we designed Frisbee discs because we were all ultimate Frisbee players. But <laughs> we also developed CD discs, uh, interactive multimedia, that explain to utilities, government ministers, corporations, communities, um, that they could technologically leapfrog in developing countries beyond making the mistakes we have of investing in coal and nuclear power and fossil fuels generally. And this seems to be what it really shaped a big part of your career was gathering information and then condensing it, working that information, and then figuring out how to, to broadcast it. That's right. And you just see, and you see it, <clears throat> putting, sort of putting it in lay terms, you see a direct link between the literacy, the eco-literacy of the global, global population and our path to sustainability. That's right. I've always been a synthesizer, and two extremely influential 
visionaries uh, on on what you just described mm-hmm. uh, was Amory Levin's Soft Energy Path and Art Rosenfeld, who was on a Nobel Prize winning team, has won just about every award you can imagine, professor at University of California, Berkeley, who he and his fellow physicists did a thermodynamic analysis of the entire economy and found out we were extremely inefficient. So those two individuals were very much uh, evidence-based, empirical-based, uh, as Amory loves to say, in God we trust, all others bring data. And you can have an opinion about anything, but prove to me that this actually performs as you suggest it would. So I've been very much an evidence-based, empirical uh, experience uh, showing real results. And, of course, you were right there as a pioneer with the results center using that exact model of what's working, what works best, what's the state of play, and trying to get scaling of that result. We, 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 we have too many one-offs and not enough accelerating the scaling of these. Right. And that was my ambition with using uh, internet technology was that's one of the best scaling tools we have. Yeah, and you were, uh, you were so early in your, in your vision for that. And I remember that uh, ACEEE conference, the American Council for an Energy Efficient Economy, out in Asilomar, and you had your all your video gear, and you had all the experts there, and you said, "Why not harvest all these these brilliant thinkers' um, greatest thoughts, and then and then get these out?" And I, I think you and I have shared uh, this great fulfillment in having interacted with so many you know, leading thinkers and leading practitioners. Uh, that we see this great opportunity for scalability, uh, and then if, if if there is a frustration, is that it doesn't happen. That's right. Doesn't happen fast enough. Exactly. And how do you deal with that frustration? You've right. been pretty good. You it, the frustration is immense, and but the 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 phenomenal success that continues to snowball and get bigger and bigger. I mean, you know, who would have thought that Elon Musk would be such a enterprising? Um, individual to start not just uh, the Tesla electric vehicle in the face of all the auto industry saying you're going to fall flat on your face, uh, but also help start Solar City about revolutionizing, putting solar panels on every rooftop, and then starts a battery company that uh, now shows the opportunity for being uh, having nano grid buildings completely 100 percent in europe they call them positive energy buildings they're actually in germany today with the utility rates that they have which are higher than in the u.s uh it is a provides a seven-year payback to invest in an electric car with solar panels in in germany's rather northern uh, latitude climate and an on-site storage system so they are 100 percent off the grid uh, is very impressive, and that's a model what the, we're moving towards in the world. We have to realign those subsidies to incent um, this kind of direction, given the fact that climate change uh, is a, a staggering impact already, but cumulatively is going to cause great disruption of our entire global economy. Uh, give you put it in a visual context. Humans now are a volcanic force on the planet. That is to say, mm-hmm. uh, we release as a, as a human species as much emissions uh, every 10 hours as the Mount Pinatubo volcanic eruption in Philippines, one of the worst in the last 150 years. And by the end of this century, business as usual, we will have uh, 
released the equivalent of 90,000 volcanic eruptions. You can imagine what that's going to do to all of our ecosystems. It's going to collapse well over half of all species on the planet, driving them to extinction. The ocean will basically be, uh, experience this, uh, acidemia where it will kill off all of the mega charismatic species that we know of. <coughs> Excuse me. And in fact, we've already seen over the last 50 years, 40% of all phytoplankton in the ocean collapsed because of the rise in the P, uh, the lowering of the pH and the rise in sea level temperature. <coughs> so this, these, um, these are, are awful, awful statistics. And I, I, I find even myself, uh, and I haven't devoted four decades to this practice yet, but it's over three. Uh, but I find myself even glazing over. Uh, right. I don't want to hear that. I can't relate to it. Uh, I don't want to think about it. I don't dwell on it. I am just working on solutions. Um, but and that's so important. I mean, how do you balance between the, um, um, you know, the shock? Uh, you know, how do you balance between just hey, just shaking people and saying, hey, look, you've got to face these statistics, this this reality, uh, and you know, creating these models. It, it sounds mm -hmm. like maybe we can shift now to, to what you're doing with Jeremy Rifkin and mm -hmm. in Luxembourg uh, in particular. But, you know, how is this model going to be transformative? How is this going to, I mean, on one hand, I, I think that there's all of these important policies and programs and initiatives and, and that leads to subsidies and that leads to the seven-year paybacks that you were talking about. And on the other hand, there's the, behavior, the behavioral element. Mm -hmm. And that is how do we get people that really are not interested in carbon and really not interested in the price per kilowatt hour or, or even the number of phytoplankton in the ocean. You know, they, they, want, they want their families. They want to go out to the movies. They want to eat well. They want a vacation. They want their kids to go to college. So how do you meld these important policies with this sort of behavioral aspect of what, what we need to get done? Well, I think there's uh, – you can approach it almost from a spherically sensible <clears throat> approach um, where – there's things that we can all agree on, um, and it may be that we all agree on it regionally, like in China. Right now, the uh, phenomenal economic growth has given rise to such massive levels of pollution uh, and destruction of all of their rivers, which are now sewage uh, byways. Uh, that their uh, large middle class now is demanding clean air, clean water. So it's so not, that it's reaching a crisis point. It's there. a crisis just, point. Just like LA did with its air. Exactly. And then everybody agrees on that. That's right. Okay. In Europe, where they already have clean air, clean water, but uh, they're seeing the impacts already of automation displacing people, they're thinking, how do we create a next economy that is going to allow us to continue to flourish and have a sense of well-being among people, but create the uh, economic livelihoods <clears throat> that are going to sustain us? And that was the great appeal of uh, Jeremy Rifkin's message, that uh, don't be afraid of automation. In fact, automation will give rise to a whole new population of jobs that we haven't, we don't, can't even think of right now. But also design, uh, sharing economy. So you don't have to have, not everybody has to invest in capital, uh, or investor capital in cars. They can share cars like with, uh, Uber or, or Lyft, um, or they can do Airbnb sharing of, uh, of one's assets already. So it's you're improving the value of your assets. The sharing economy is going to have some ripple impacts uh, that Europe's already appreciating. Uh, one of the groups on our team um, study cities around the world, and they find that most cities 
have over 60% of their land area tied up with supporting the vehicle. And that's garages, parking garages, uh, roadways. <clears throat> but with a sharing economy, you're going to collapse the need for 80% of those vehicles. And you can start um, transforming those roads into more built environment, more park and open space, and create new opportunities for the citizenry while you're in enhancing their well-being. So it's it's a different solution for different places. Um, and you, you know, we always come back to the 80-20 rule that uh, you're only going to see 20% of the population acting on a problem but we're seeing in the polls i mean just in the united states here where which is so toxic in its politics and in its media reporting um 80 of the american public supports a renewable energy economy uh three-fourths of the economy wants the congress to act on dealing with greenhouse gas problems but our Congress is doing just the opposite, and that's because there are 300 lobbyists for every member of Congress. So the one aspect of the sharing economy is to get citizens involved, interact on platforms, just like with Facebook or the fact that you take a tool like Wikipedia, which is one of the five most visited websites in the world. Uh, it started out with a one dream, six people working on it, and in the first 10 years, it exceeded the Encyclopedia Britannica by orders of magnitude. In fact, um, it, right now, today, something like 29,000 volumes of information is in the Wikipedia equivalent to Encyclopedia Britannica. And IBM analyzed how long did it take to set that up? Uh, it, it took about 100 million hours, which seems immense until you compare that with the fact that Americans watch 100 million hours of advertisements every weekend on television, or the fact that Americans spend 100 million hours every day on their Facebook. So the opportunity of freeing people up to become involved and engaged in reshaping their communities has never been as forceful and, um, I think, leverageable than with the fact that you take a mobile phone. It now has the, a trillion dollars worth of value. We don't realize this yet. We haven't tapped into it, but you literally can start businesses with that. You can walk around buildings and take tours showing how did it become a positive energy building. You can walk through a city and see what rooftops are solar capable and then run the economics and financing of it. So these types of new opportunities, I think, give great uh, – a positive emphasis and optimism. Optimism, optimism. Tremendous. The, the, optimism. The, the, you know, the, the doomsday is. Uh, you know, we do need to be very cognizant of the reality, the data that you talked about. But uh, I'm with you that um, it's just fantastic. All the automation, all of the information flows. Uh, what? How? How great it is. A, a friend of mine in in um, San Diego is retiring. And he wants to play music. He loves music, and now he's playing music on the internet with people all over the world. Right. What a what a what a what a fantastic change! I want to make sure we talk about your your work with ruptures because I think you're you're bringing lots of uh, vignettes of of it into our discussion. Yeah. But there is a Michael Totten that um, <clears throat> deserves, in my view, uh, great recognition, just as Jeremy Rifkin or Amory Lovins or Art Rosenfeld uh, have. Uh, so uh, talk about your your book, your your thinking, how and how this is going to be another yeah. great contribution to the field. Well, kind of this is uh, kind of come together over many years of figuring out how best to reach people, and uh, and I I was really inspired by a professor at Stanford, Michael 
uh, Mark Jacobson and Berkeley professor Mark DeLucci, who, along with a dozen of their uh, colleagues, have mapped every uh, country in the world and every state in the United States of how we could have 100% solar wind and efficiency economy. And down to the turbines, the solar panels, uh, it's, it's a remarkable big yep. database. So I started thinking, well, how do you get this information out? People aren't going to read the data, so they have to have a new narrative. So my new narrative is called Ruptures, and it's a three-part, uh, it's not a book or even an e-book, I call it a bloom, which is a book-like, open-source, open-access, multimedia material. Because it, now you can access on the mobile phone where you have a teaser, a paragraph of facts, factoids, but then you have a, a hyperlink to either a calculator or a video, a audio, uh, a GIS mapping. Uh, you can literally begin to... to do a deep dive into any facet of this information. Okay, that's very well put. So you said the other day that you have 1,400 pages written. That's right. You don't expect anybody in a bloom, uh, you don't expect anybody to no. sit down and read through the whole thing. They're going to put in a keyword or whatever and that's zoom right. right into that specific information that they need. And so this will be on a platform, an internet platform, which they can access, open source access through their mobile phone or any handheld dev device. And they can interact with it. So the idea is that I will seed it with that 1,400, and I actually have 10,000, but, uh, you know, you will seed all these that will be linked together. And you can, like, just like with uh, Wikipedia, you can move in every direction. If you're a neophyte, know nothing. You obviously can't leap to the same place that a specialist or a polymath uh, expert uh, could move. So you can move laterally. You can move vertically deeper in each subject. You can move off in diagonals to see, well, how's the relationship between coral leaf, reef deaths and CO2, and what are the solutions? But I broke it into three parts, because it seems to me people are drawn to different areas. So ruptures consists of disruptions, eruptions, and corruptions. And I think, uh, as you and I discussed, there is a fourth one, bankrupt. Uh, bankruptions. <clears throat> so disruptions is about all these new technologies, what the internet, uh, Jeremy Rifkin's Third Industrial Revolution, are going to offer exponential productivity and well-being, and we need to figure out how to design that so that all the prosperous results don't just go to the one-tenth of one percent of the wealthy, a winner-take-all. But as in Europe, they're saying, rather than extracting the wealth from our community, we want to create wealth locally that stays locally and creates uh, the well-being for all of us. And so uh, like a cooperative, our, our farm cooperatives the last 50 years are an uh, example of how people can come together, share in the capital risk and, and share in the benefits. Uh, it's a perfect model for what we can do. So disruptions is, it covers all the science, technology, engineering of uh, these examples. of And the change. And the change. Mm -hmm. uh, very positive, very upbeat. Uh, the eruptions goes back to this phenomena that we are a volcanic force on the planet. And so it's all the best science uh, currently that shows that if you're concerned about any ecosystem, any plant or animal species, or your fellow human beings, or your grandchildren or their children, then you need to stop this volcanic force. And so it shows the science of how to do that as well. 
The third section, though, is why hasn't people why haven't people taken up this faster? And it's because of corruption. And I use it in a broad sense: corrupted politics, where the lobbyists are basically paying uh, today now an entire political party like the GOP, where you have the Koch brothers, the well, one of the wealthiest families in the world, uh, who literally bought the entire party to say in lockstep, brain, in a brainwashed, group mind thinking kind of mentality that they don't, they deny climate change, they don't recognize it's a problem, and they're certainly not going to cha- take any public policies to resolve it. And they maintain the subsidies for the fossil fuel industry. So it's just going in the wrong direction. But you also have other corrupt institutions. Uh, and part of that is, you know, the, these wealthy individuals have bought up news media and they are providing disinformation like Fox News uh, or in other networks. They just don't report on it at all. So you have a misinformed and disinformed public. Yeah. But you also have it in academia and in religious institutions. Where are our church leaders, you know, the Pope, put out uh, a phenomenal uh, encyclical. The encyclical. But then will, will people be able to go into this corruption part of this bloom and just understand kind of why there have been all these barriers to what Absolutely. we just see as so logical? Yes. I mean, nobody wants to pollute the planet so their kids can't live on it. Right. Right. So, But they don't understand, but they don't understand what's going why. on. But you're, you're thinking that with the bloom that if they really systematically understand where those barriers are, that then they start to put their votes in the right places, then they start to put their money into the right places. Exactly. To direct their careers to the right, you know, in and the right And this comes right back to what Jeremy Rifkin points out, is that you now have these internet tools. I, I call us that we're entering the uh, accessory economy. <laughs> uh, and how do you develop an appetite for these apps, these applications where you can click on and have this wonderful tool help you understand. So all the data is out there, the big data, uh, the algorithms for developing the patterns. So I can put in, uh, I mean, there's already uh, thousands of organizations that are developing their apps. Uh, uh, Paul um, (laughs) started uh, the garden company and the food company. Paul Hawken has a book out about the 10,000 the nonprofits around the world, which are becoming a force because they're developing these tools, these apps. So you can begin to see down to the zip code how your politicians are either uh, a positive force in this or a negative force. And mm-hmm. so it can help you decide, make more informed judgments. Uh, even a company like Walmart, which uh, because of the great campaigning against them, have moved to taking a sustainability initiative, which they're now developing uh, an app so that when you go shopping, you can find out where was this produce uh, farmed, uh, how was it uh, processed, at, right to the point of retail sale. So you can see issues of child labor or issues of uh, low wages, or you can see issues of uh, pesticides, whether it's organic. Uh, all that information will be available on an app. You, you're making a, a wonderful case, and you and I have sort of joked around over the years that I've always said people want less information, and you said, <laughs> and you've always said people need more. But you're making a, a great case for for a lot more access, so that people can really make more informed decisions. I want to just sort of wrap up with um, a little bit about. What keeps you motivated? I mean, I th- I'm sure that everybody who hears this podcast will appreciate the depth of uh, facts and figures and perspectives that you have from your years and years of of reading and learning. But um, there's got to be a side of you that gets tired <laughs> or, or frustrated. And 
what keeps Michael Totten motivated and fired up every day? No doubt about it. I mean, it's easy for people to think they're the only one working on these problems and get very depressed. Um, I, I've been a lifelong exerciser. That helps immensely. I bicycle 40 miles uh, three, four times a week, and uh, that just gets me back into regenerative mode. Uh, my grandchildren, I think about them growing up. I have a three-year-old granddaughter and a 12-year-old granddaughter, and what kind of life do I want to leave for them? I mean, it's just uh, horrendous right now. So every time I get around them, their enthusiasm, uh, passion, and love uh, spurs me. And I, and I think, you know, there is a lot to be said with what kind of uh, community and family uh, well-being do you want? And uh, it all, you know, uh, is intimately rebounds in your own uh, conscious uh, well-being. But I think also I've developed some real rigorous habits. I am a lifelong curious soul. We're only here for a brief spasm of time. We are uh, in a uh, just a nest, infinite nest of mysteries. And I find them all awesome, whether it's the hiking we've done, the backpacking over the last couple of days, and just uh, standing there in awe and wonder at all this, um, to the challenge of seeing if you can design a more benign uh, activities. Uh, I've never been compelled to make a lot of money or to become famous uh, or to have a lot of power. Um, in fact, I, I love uh, that Tao saying uh, that the best leaders are those that are not seen. Um, so, I, I, you know, it's a roller coaster, but it's, it's, uh, I like roller coaster rides. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much. Uh, I, I really appreciate this and, and uh, thank you for what you've done. I, I'm sure that the world is a better place uh, since Michael Totten has graced us uh, with your presence. So. Well, thank you, Ted. Thank you, Ecomotion. And uh, you inspire me, let me tell you. <laughs> I, I love your passion as well. It's deep, a deep well. Well, thanks. Let's carry on. Yes. Thank Good. You. That closes this, this first podcast. Ocean.